Let us pray. Oh God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have revealed to us all that we need to know to be reconciled to our Creator. That there is indeed a cure for our enmity with our God. Lord, we praise You eternally that You loved us enough to reveal Yourself to us in this way. We pray now for the preaching and teaching of Your Word. and We pray that it would edify us, that it would transform our minds, that it would even rebuke us where necessary. And we pray that it would be glorifying to You and that You would open our hearts and our ears to receive it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you would turn with me once again to Mark's Gospel. We're in chapter 2 today. The text will be verses 13 through 17. But I wanted to offer a, a brief reminder to us. I know you know this. But as we're working through the Gospel accounts, these various narratives, these various vignettes, these various stories that we see are not disconnected. Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has a very intentional scheme that he's presenting to us. From the very first verse, he has declared that Jesus Christ, this is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now think back over the last couple of, narr- couple of sermons, the couple, last couple of narratives that we've looked at. We've seen two very dramatic scenes. Last week we saw the healing and the forgiving of a man who could not walk. You remember, it's dramatic. His, his friends literally dug out uh, through a mud roof and lowered him down on a stretcher in order that Jesus might heal him. And also, he had his sins forgiven. Jesus declared to him, take up your bed, and go home. And prior to that, not immediately prior, but sometime before that, he cleanses a leper. And the leper comes to Jesus and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. In other words, Jesus, I know you're able. The question is, are you willing? There's no question of his capability, There's no question in the leper's mind of his power. It was only a question in his mind about his willingness. And you have to be willing to use a little bit of sanctified imagination and and become a little bit of even a, a, a sanctified studier of the soul. What must have been going through the mind of a leper who for who knows how long had been outcast, who'd been ceremonially unclean, not allowed into the typological presence of God in the sacrificial system. He must have felt quite forgotten of by God. He must have felt very punished by God. So he comes to Jesus humbly, meekly, says, I know you could do this, but for me, would you be willing? And you remember Jesus answered, I will. Be clean. But with both the leper and the paralytic, I think their stories have something in common. Both of them would elicit a natural sympathy. Even to the most hardened of hearts, surely, a man who was physically diseased, who had skin sloughing off of his body, the man who could not walk, who was a paralytic, carried by four friends and and lowered down, surely those would elicit some natural sympathy. And so we're not really surprised on one level, when healing happens. See, we, all of us still have a little bit of this erroneous or wrong cause and effect kind of thinking that, that good people are people who are suffering deserve good things. We all have a little bit of that left in us, don't we? No matter how much you are as a, a committed Calvinist, no matter how much you... you absolutely will confess to the total depravity of man. Isn't there still something in us that says, well, yeah, but this poor leper, didn't he deserve to be healed? This poor paralytic, didn't he deserve to be healed? 
And so, especially maybe with the paralytic, we don't necessarily think about his condition being that of a serious sinner. We just see that his legs don't function as they ought to function. Or or we might even think, well, maybe he is a great sinner, but surely he and the leper have suffered enough already so that they would be forgiving of their sins, the healing of their bodies. Well, that's more understandable. So what I think about as I've meditated on the passage this week and looking back, knowing that Mark is working through sequentially, he's building layer upon layer upon layer a theological truth. He's wanting us to see and behold Jesus is the Son of God. We see his, his power to teach in ways that the scribes, they, they marvel. The people marvel. He was able to cast out demons publicly. He healed a man in the synagogue. He heals this leper. He he heals the paralytic and declares his sins forgiven. But when I think about those together, there's a question that comes to mind. Maybe, Maybe you might think something similar. Jesus proved willing to heal a lamentable leper. He proved able to forgive the sins of a pitiable paralytic. But is he both willing and able to save a severe sinner? Is he both able and willing to save someone who willfully, stubbornly, rebelliously, knowingly sins against God? What about that? See, I think that's the question that's underneath the narrative that we're going to see today. In the calling of Levi or Matthew. Jesus did prove willing to heal such people, including the stubborn and rebellious. Jesus was moved by compassion towards a leper, but is he equally compassionate towards a reckless rebel? The question that comes now is what kind of people is the Lord Jesus Christ willing to save? See, the question is not ability. It's will. Is Jesus willing to save the worst of sinners? Isn't that really a question that that is at the foundation of Christianity? At the foundation of our faith? Do we have a God in Christ who's willing to save the worst? The key phrase in the passage, and I'll read it in a moment, but the key phrase is, is verse 17. Jesus hears the discussion between the Pharisees and his disciples, and Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinner. See, Jesus is using a sort of proverb, comparing himself metaphorically to a doctor, and said, well, no doctor's really worth anything if he's not willing to treat the sick. A doctor who's only willing to see well people is not a whole lot of help, is he? And thus, Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous or the self-righteous. I came to call sinners. So let's read together the passage, beginning of verse 13 to 17. The title of today's sermon is is The Doctor to the Sick. And I want to expound the passage under under three headings to help us organize our, our hearing here. One, let's behold this doctor. Again, Mark is putting before us the Son of God, and Jesus says, I am like a doctor, and I'm here to to, to heal the sick. I'm I'm here to address the sinners, not the self-righteous, not those who have no need of a physician. And we are are intended here by, by the Holy Spirit through Mark to behold this doctor. First of all, we want to behold this doctor who can identify who the sick are. Sometimes that's more complicated than we think. A doctor who can actually diagnose correctly. Secondly, we have a doctor who can heal and revitalize the whole man. We have a doctor who can heal, who can revitalize the whole man. And thirdly, we have a doctor who teaches us something important. We behold a doctor who teaches us to pity all sinners of every kind. So let's hear together the text. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. 
he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with sinners, with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Notice in the first place, we we behold here a physician, a doctor who can identify the sick and dying. Now, it it doesn't take a lot of skill to diagnose a leper, does it? And we can think about this because Jesus puts this to us as sort of a proverb, as, as a metaphor, as an illustration, so we can think in intangible uh, uh, medical terms. Some diseases, some ailments are very easy to identify because we can do a blood test or we, there are certain symptoms and it's very obvious. Sometimes you can go into a doctor and the doctor says, I know exactly what's wrong with you. But often it isn't that easy, is it? It's much more difficult. Now to the Jews... The term Gentile and sinner were more or less synonymous because it wasn't only that the Gentiles were ceremonially unclean, but they were known for their immorality. And, and it's, it's, in, it's interesting because three different times in this narrative, that phrase, tax collectors and sinners, or sinners and tax collectors, repeated three times in only four verses. So that's important. Also, the idea of eating with such people is repeated four times. That's important. To the Jews, Gentiles, or sinners, and tax collectors were considered among the worst of the worst when it came to immorality. See, the issue here is not merely that Jesus was eating with people who were ceremonially unclean. He was eating with those who were willfully so, who were willfully willfully immoral. Now, remember in Matthew 18, much later in his ministry, when Jesus is giving, his instru- giving instructions to his disciples, working through an answer to the question, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? And ultimately, Jesus gives instruction to the disciples, to the gathered church, that if your brother sins against you, what do you do? You go to him privately. If he hears you, wonderful. You've won your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, you go with one or two witnesses. If he doesn't listen to the witnesses, you take it to the whole church. If he won't listen even to the church, says Jesus... What does he say? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. See, Jesus recognized to be outside of the covenant, someone whose profession of faith was undermined by their failure, their refusal to repent, their refusal to be corrected by their brothers and sisters, to be corrected even by the whole church, begging and pleading with them, brother, sister, will you please turn away and obey God's word? No, I will not do that. And Jesus said, then they have to be considered like a sinner and a tax collector. But it wasn't just that they were immoral. The designation of tax collector held an additional stigma, and rightfully so, because the the tax collectors were those who were actively, willfully rebelling against God and abusing their own people. You know, in Romans 10, Paul speaks about his, the, the great heart he has for what he calls his kinsman according to the flesh. And he said, I would, I would, if, if it were possible, I myself would be willing to cut off, be cut off for their sake if they could know the Lord Jesus Christ. The tax collectors were the opposite of that. They were willing to make a buck. Make, well, make a bunch of bucks. At the expense of their own people. Listen to Ben Witherington. He kind of unpacks some of this for us. He says, Levi, or Matthew, was some sort of customs official. See, this was not an income tax collector. This was not an IRS agent. This was some sort of customs official placed at bridges, canals, and on state roads. 
or a tax farmer collecting from the farms in the region. Such persons were Jews and were especially despised and considered traitors by their fellow Jews because not merely were they associated with Gentiles, but in fact often worked for them, helping to collect funds for the Roman oppressors. In the Talmud, such tax collectors were lumped together with murderers and thieves. So that's where they ranked them in their minds. It needs to be understood that they, these customs officials, made their living from the extra that they charged people on top of the taxes actually owed to Rome and or its client kings. The rulers did not usually care, meaning the Roman rulers, did not usually care how much extra they charged so long as the rulers got the specified cut they had demanded. The potential for corruption and extortion was high. The way one got such a job in the first place was by paying for it, by outbidding others for the privilege of collecting taxes. So if Levi was a tax collector in Capernaum, then fish were indeed one of the commodities regularly taxed in the region. In that case, he probably was already well-known and despised by Simon and Andrew, Jacob, and John. Unlike the leper, unlike the paralytic, we're confronted here in Mark chapter 2 and verse 13 and 14 with a man who was a willful sinner, a stubborn sinner. And where does Jesus encounter him? Does Jesus encounter Levi when Levi is humbly following after Jesus, listening to his words and eager to be instructed? Does he encounter Levi when, when Jesus is out teaching and preaching, and Levi comes and says, I want to be part of this? No. Levi is still at the tax booth. He's still actively engaged in his sin, in his rebellion, when Christ meets him. This is who Levi, or or, or Matthew, and I'm using those names interchangeably because I believe it's the same man. This is who Matthew was before Christ called him. He was lost. He was separated from the covenant mercy of God. Again, think back to the leper. The leper knew he needed help, didn't he? The paralytic knew he needed help. Matthew is oblivious to his disease. Doesn't care. He's making money. We're going to see in the next scene, he's got a nice house. Enough that he could bring many friends and colleagues in for a grand feast. But Matthew didn't know, or at least he would not admit. Matthew was a willing and deliberate sinner. He was sitting in the tax booth. He was actively engaged in his sin. Look at verse 14. And as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. I mean, as it it were, he's caught red-handed. There's no denying the not just a sin that he was doing, but an active, all-encompassing lifestyle of sin. And even though he was likely a man of physical means, and even though he didn't show the outward suffering of the leper or the paralytic, he was every bit as lost, every bit as hopeless, every bit as helpless as any of those other men. He just didn't know it. But Christ appears. Christ appears to him. And think about this. Why does Christ appear to him? Not because Matthew was deserving of it. Not because Matthew was looking for something from Christ. Not because he was out searching for the Christ who had been promised, that he was searching the scriptures daily, as old Simeon was, looking for the salvation of Israel. That was the farthest thing on his mind. It was not because Matthew was eagerly listening to the teaching of Jesus. It wasn't even because Matthew was aware of his great need to be healed. No, Christ just simply seeks him out and points his finger at him and says, You. Follow me. And the marvelous thing is he does. He obeys Christ and follows him. Matthew Henry makes this observation. He says, with God through Christ, there is a mercy to pardon the greatest sins and grace to sanctify the greatest sinners. Matthew, that had been a publican, became an evangelist, the first that put pen to paper, and the fullest in writing the life of Christ. Great sin and scandal before conversion are no bar to great gifts, graces, and advancements after. 
Nay, God may be the more glorified. Christ prevented him with his call. In bodily cures, ordinarily, he was sought unto. But in these spiritual cures, he was found of them that sought him not. For this is the great evil and peril of the disease of sin, that those who are under it desire not to be made whole. But isn't this the grace of the gospel? Isn't this one more significant plank in Mark's case that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God who came to seek and to save the lost? He doesn't come merely to the pitiable, merely to those who naturally earn our compassion, but those even stubbornly, willfully, profitably engaged in their sin. This really points us to the doctrine, the scriptural doctrine of effectual call, doesn't it? None of us, none of you, I certainly was not, was out looking for God. Contrary to what you might think even of yourself, you were not looking for God, at least not on his terms. But God in Christ has sought you in the person of his spirit. I'm going to invite you to turn with me in our confession of faith. If, if you don't have one, you can go to the back of the Blue Trinity hymnal that's there in your, your seat back. And in chapter 10, chapter 10 of our confession, I want you to hear how this is, is summarized for us. And again, our confession is, is like a road map. It, it describes the, the highways and byways of the scriptures. It doesn't add anything to it. It doesn't make anything true that isn't true from the word of God. But it is a very helpful summary for us. And I want to consider the first two paragraphs. This is chapter 10 entitled, Of Effectual Calling. Paragraph 1 reads this way, those whom God has predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Do you think Matthew could have given a hearty amen to that statement? I believe he would have. Enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God taking away their heart of stone and giving to them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. Matthew didn't fight against the Lord's call. When he looked at him, looked him in the eyes, said, you come with me. Matthew doesn't fight against this. In an instant, He's born again. In an instant, his heart is renewed. It doesn't mean all of his sin went away, or all of his, his uh, sinful tendencies or his sinful desires just went away. But he was washed, he was cleansed, and he was put on a path of sanctification before the Lord. Look at paragraph 2 in that same chapter. This effectual call of God is, is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature co-working with his special grace. The creature being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. And once again, Matthew, I think, would say, Amen. That described me to a T. I was sitting there thinking today, had nothing on my mind today except how much money I was going to make. And what kind of scheme could I concoct to profit myself more at the expense of my own kinsman. But God. That paragraph continues, he is thereby, this sinner, is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, it is only because the grace of God has appeared to you. It is only because the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of his Spirit, has made himself known and opened your eyes to see and opened your ears to hear the glorious grace offered to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The doctor who can identify the sick and dying, even those who do not know themselves, know that they need healing. Let's behold this such a position. The one who's able to point at a man who doesn't even know he's dying and said, you're sick. You're dying. 
you're mortally ill and you need my grace. But the doctor's power doesn't stop with his ability to diagnose Matthew's condition. It doesn't even stop with his ability to prescribe a cure. Our great physician has the power to make whole. He has the the authority to redeem the lives of former rebels and make them friends. Let's consider here in the second place, let's behold this physician, this doctor who can revitalize the whole man. There is some gap in time between verses 14 and 15. We don't know exactly how long. Levi, or Matthew, rises up from the his toll booth, he follows after Christ, and verse 15 says, as he reclined at table in his house. This is the house of Levi. This is the house of Matthew. And there were many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Imagine the testimony of Matthew. Let me tell you what happened. I was out there one day. It's a Tuesday morning. It's going to be a busy day. Christ came that day. And Christ spoke into my soul in ways that I had never even imagined before. And he healed me. He set my foot upon a firm place in him. And he forgave my sins. And it's a great skill for any doctor to be able accurately to diagnose a man's medical ailment. I mean, how many people have suffered? You know people. You maybe be one of those people that have suffered long because you can't get a good diagnosis. Something's wrong with me and I don't know what it is. But how many more? How much more skill is required for a doctor actually able to heal a disease? To say, I know what's wrong with you and I can treat it. What skill? What ability? What, what a gift and Such is the transforming ability of our great physician. He not only diagnoses Matthew's condition, he himself is the cure. This is why Paul, when he wrote to the the church at Rome, there in the very first chapter of that great book to the Roman church, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew and also for the Greek. Now, when Paul says salvation, he's not, he's not saying it's the power of God for justification and justification only. He's saying it's for salvation. It's, for, it's the comprehensive sense. Not only to cleanse a man from his sins, but to sanctify him completely, to adopt him into the household of God as a, as a son or a daughter of the king, and to preserve that one until the day of the Lord's return or until that man's own death. Paul understood the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God for comprehensive salvation. That's why later on, at the very, Paul's very last written testimony is in 2 Timothy. And there in 2 Timothy, he uses a vivid metaphor to talk about this change that can take place. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, Paul speaks about a household. He says, in this household... There's a large house. There are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of clay and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, having been prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, when Paul talks about wooden and and clay vessels that were used for dishonor, you know what he's talking about, right? This is long before there were indoor plumbing, and when nature called in the middle of the night, you needed something readily available, and there would be a vessel designed for that purpose. And he contrasts that with vessels that were made for honorable use, gold vessels, silver vessels. I remember as a kid, it was kind of a running joke. My grandmother liked pretty things and antique things, and on displayed proudly in one of the guest bedrooms was this ornate ceramic bowl, and she talked about it was a punch bowl, and we all knew it was not a punch bowl. 
But she insisted that that's what it was. And she insisted this was for honorable use. And we kept saying, Grandma, it's not what it is. You know, this week we've had a, uh, a bit of a remodel project, and that involved pulling sinks out of two bathrooms, and you pull the peat trap out. And you pull a peat trap out, and there's all kinds of stuff in there that you don't want on you, you don't want to see. And, of course, any plumber will tell you that's not the worst pipe in the house. It's just a sink. But it's a mess. And I can't even imagine thinking, well, I would take that dirty PVC pipe and make that into a champagne flute or a wine goblet, something for honorable or festive use. And yet this is precisely what the gospel announces to men. That I will take, God says, I will take you. Once committed to your sin, once rebellion, in rebellion against God, willful, deliberate, active, ongoing, and I will make you fit for honorable use. God will accomplish not only your justification through the atonement of Jesus Christ, but by the power of his Holy Spirit, he will transform you into a vessel for holy use. Do you know this power in you, friends? Do you know that power to transform you? To take that which you were once ashamed and say, now I can redeem that. Have you ever fled to the only doctor who can not only rightly diagnose you, but actually heal you from the inside out, make you whole, make you clean? Romans 10, Paul declares, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And again, this is a comprehensive salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Some of you this morning may struggle to believe that. Even those who've walked with Christ for quite some time. You may struggle to believe, but can he, can he really take those things? Those things that were done in stubborn rebellion even, and redeem them? Not the things done in ignorance and unbelief only, but even that willful sin, the presumptuous sin. Now, some of you grew up in, in Christian homes, or maybe, if not Christian homes, maybe at least outwardly moral homes, where you, you had some sort of, in God's kindness, you, you were spared, perhaps from the worst of immorality. You were outwardly restrained in some way from pursuing sin to its full, in its full measure. And that's a great blessing, having been delivered from the bulky baggage of yesterday's vices. But there comes with that some temptations. Comes with that some temptations. I think we see here in this text. Verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they witness this, now they're not in the house, mind you, because that would defile their, their pretty little faces. But the scribes of the Pharisees, in verse 16, they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. And they say to his, they don't even confront Jesus directly. They said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now you have to hear a tone of, of scorn, a tone of contempt, a tone of derision in their voices. Why would he eat with those people? same time, some of you did not grow up in Christian homes. Those of you who lived long under the pervasive power of sin may actually know, in, in a sense, more comprehensively the redeeming power of the gospel. In either case, we, we have to acknowledge whether you grew up in a, in a moral environment or whether you grew up unrestrained. In either case, God can use those things to our blessing, but also our enemy can use them to our temptation. I mean, think it through. 
the one who grew up generally moral, maybe you have less baggage and grief from former sins, for which you ought to give thanks. But at the same time, because you were spared the consequences and the scars, might you be more tempted to self-righteousness? Might you be more tempted, as the scribes were, to look outside, to look from the outside in and say, wow, look at that mighty sinner. You know, like the other Pharisee that finds himself worshiping at the temple, Lord, thank you that I'm not like other men. Now, the one who has lived in unrestrained pursuit of sin, those of you who had opportunity to live as your sinful heart desired, you you may know now, having been redeemed and cleansed, you may, in in a very experiential way, know the transforming transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not theory to you. It's not just doctrine to you. It's not academic to you. You can say, I was once that, but not anymore. Not any longer. This is the message that Paul gives to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, brothers. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male homosexuals, nor passive homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. The one who's lived in an, in an unrestrained pursuit of sin may, may know as a blessing the, the experientially the power of God's transforming grace, but you may be tempted to doubt your forgiveness. The enemy may tempt you at that very point and say, yes, but you used to be this. Used to do that. The former adulterer who lost his family. The man justly incarcerated for his crimes. The once sexually immoral man or woman who now struggles to enjoy all God's good gifts in a godly marriage. The prodigal son who knowingly, willfully rebelled against the truth he had been taught as a child. The mother who willfully took the life of her own preborn baby. That one may struggle. And many, many more may struggle to say, is this grace really mine? Am I really healed? Am I really cleansed? There's a wonderful illustration from the life of John Newton. You may know the story of John Newton, a prolific hymn writer. In fact, arguably the writer of the most famous hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Do you know those words were penned by a man who spent more than two decades actively running from God? He lost his mother two weeks before he was seven years old. His mother was a godly woman who taught him the scriptures, who taught him the stories of the Bible. His father quickly remarried, and John was sent off to a boarding school and then later forcibly conscripted into the Navy uh, in a roundabout way, escaped the Navy, but only through being traded onto a slave trade ship and spent more than a decade actively pursuing the slave trade. He participated in those decades in all manner of immorality, of blasphemy, of cruelty to other human beings, if not actively, at least passively participating in the murder of countless lives. One biographer describes Newton's response after a particularly brutal storm at sea for days. They did not think they would survive. In fact, at one point, the captain was thinking of throwing Newton overboard, almost like Jonah, blaming him and God's wrath upon him for the storm. And Newton's own words, he said, Upon reaching the shore, I resolved to swear no more, 
Newton even went back to church. However, he was not yet a Christian. He said later, I consider this as the beginning of my return to God, or rather his return to me, but I cannot consider myself to have been a believer in the full sense of a word till a considerable time afterward. The biographer goes on to describe, before experiencing God's saving grace, John Newton had no qualms about swearing up a blue streak, blaspheming the God of heaven, jeering the Bible, scoffing at piety, engaging in vile practices, buying and selling human beings like chattel. Yet after his conversion, John Newton changed completely. He pastored for 23 years, constantly punctuating his sermons with the theme of God's grace. How do we explain such a difference in one man's life? Old and frail, Newton explained it this way just weeks before he died. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Beloved, this is the physician who heals to the uttermost. He doesn't just diagnose. He heals the whole man. Thoroughly, completely. And even those things, the remnants of our past sin, the consequences of those sins that may remain to this very hour, he set upon his people a promise that one day when he returns, we will be raised up with a glorified body like unto his. And every tear will be wiped away. Every ailment healed. We're no longer the possibility even of temptation and sin will abide upon us. Christ is a great Savior. He is the doctor to the sick. And even those who refuse at first to believe they are sick unto death are able to be healed. I I, I don't know how you can contemplate a passage like this and come away saying that this is dependent upon man, what he chooses. This is evidence of God's divine grace, unprovoked, unmerited, unwarranted, unsought. And yet here it is, right before us. This is the Son of God, Mark says. Our great physician is one who not only can rightly diagnose our condition, even when we don't know, we don't even know we have a condition. But he can also heal us to the uttermost. He saves the whole man. He saves the whole woman. Not merely outward behavior, not only the symptoms of our sin but the root of the disease. But I think there's one more lesson that we need to learn from this narrative. Not only is Jesus the doctor who can rightly diagnose even those who don't know they're sick, not only is he the doctor who can heal to the uttermost, but look what happens. I believe there's this other lesson is that Jesus is the doctor who urges pity upon all sinners. He urges pity upon all sinners. See, the confrontation here happens sort of indirectly. And I don't know, the text doesn't tell us if perhaps um, because the, the scribes of the Pharisees were outside of the house, because they wouldn't go in, if perhaps a couple of Jesus' disciples were outside, and that's where they meet them, or they meet them going in or coming out, and they challenge them. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, in the Jewish mind, to eat with them was was to endorse everything that they're about. To participate fully in what they're doing. And and the the implication here, of course, is what kind of teacher do you have who openly, willfully defiles himself? What kind of doctor would subject himself to the contagion of this kind of disease? That's your question. And so they confront Jesus' disciples, and of course Jesus hears about this, and he responds. But notice, what's the source of their, uh, of their anger? What's the source of their disgust? It was because Jesus was violating their social structure. He was violating their own traditions. Their own, their own traditions forbade eating with sinners, And here, we see these customs officers, these tax officials, who were aligned with Rome, making and and engaged in a very profitable enterprise, and here's there's a whole mess of them. 
gathered in Levi's house. And, and the Pharisees are, are beside themselves. Why would he do this to the self-righteous? No tax collector. No tax collector could be considered worthy of grace. By natural compassion, a paralytic, maybe. By common human standards, maybe a leper would deserve mercy, but a tax collector, no way. Do you think like that sometimes? As you think about your own enemies, some that you know personally, some that you only know from a distance, and you see, these are true enemies of Christ. These are true enemies of your people. Do we think like this? No man who, engage, who is engaged purposely, maliciously, willfully in sin should ever have mercy offered to him. It's a challenging statement, isn't it? Because if we're honest, if we're honest, we've got a little Pharisee in us. Maybe a lot. In Matthew's account of this event, he expands his recollection of Jesus' words just a little bit. He says, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Go and learn what this means. Saints, I put that before you today. For those of you who are in Christ, for those of you who you yourselves have tasted the mercy of God. Go and learn what this means. God in his grace may choose to show mercy to the worst of sinners. We have negative examples of such phenomenon in, in the scriptures. I think of Jonah. Jonah was commanded of God, go and proclaim repentance to the Ninevites. Jonah's response was, no way. They don't deserve mercy. God, do you know who the Ninevites are? They're the cruelest of the cruel. They're barbaric. They have done unspeakable things to our people, to our women. No way. Well, I preach to them because I know who you are, God. You might, you might actually grant them repentance, and I don't want to take that chance. Well, you know how the story of Jonah goes, I'm not going to preach that this morning. We all got a little bit of Jonah in us too, don't we? You see, we can show partiality in a lot of different ways, can't we? We, we can show partiality in one hand, bias against you know, two different directions. We can, show, we can despise the poor. We can also despise the rich. We're capable of declaring in our minds that Either or both, rich or poor, weak or strong, are not worthy of the grace that we have received. Matthew Henry once more, he says, note, those are too tender of their own good name who to preserve it with some nice people will decline a good work. Those who are too tender of their own good name. In other words, I don't want to sully my own reputation by being seen with those people. He goes on, Christ would not do so. They thought the publicans were to be hated. No, saith Christ, they are to be pitied. They are sick and need a physician. They are sinners and they need a savior. They thought Christ's character should separate him from them. No, saith Christ, my commission directs me to them. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So let's go back to the beginning when I asked the question, what kind of sinner is Christ willing to save? To what kind of man or woman is Christ willing to show mercy? I hope you see the answer is even to the worst of sinners. Even to those who are active and willful and purposeful and stubborn in their sin. 
May it never be that we as Christ's people refuse to offer the gospel to that one. To the one we think, somewhere nagging in the back of our mind, that one's not worthy. If that's you, may this be a rebuke to you this morning. It's been a rebuke to me, I promise you. May it also be an encouragement to us. Maybe an encouragement to you if you still wrestle at times. the horrors of your own past. You wrestle at times with grief over prior prodigal ways. May you be on guard, Christian, who has been, like in God's providence, spared because you are externally restrained, perhaps by your parents or someone else, from pursuing with, with the, the full measure of your lusts. Do not take away from that that you are somehow more worthy of the gospel. Don't think of yourself, well, I was, I was a leper who was sick by something that wasn't my own doing, and God was gracious to me. You don't think, well, I was, I was more like the paralytic. I, I was a sinner, but it really wasn't my fault. But recognize the grace of this great physician who can identify the sick and dying, even those who don't know that they are sick and dying who can heal the whole man, the whole woman. And also behold this doctor, this son of God, who urges upon us, who in fact demands of us a pity towards all sinners in every place. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the mercy that you have shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for those here today who are in Christ. I pray that you will renew the joy of our salvation, that we will will see again in the testimony and the life of Matthew and your calling of him, of how, how lavishly you have extended and poured out upon us your mercy. For those who are here this morning that do not yet know Christ, Lord, I pray that they will count it a great mercy to be in his presence today. As his word is preached to hear his voice, not just the voice of a man. And that, Father, you would be pleased to send your Holy Spirit to look in the eye one who is stubbornly rebelliously, willfully running after you, running away from you. That today would be the day you look upon that sinner and say, follow me. Lord, be exalted today as your mercy rains down by your Spirit's power. As you call men and women, boys and girls, out of darkness and into the light of your own Son. We ask this in Christ and for his sake. Amen.